I'd like to have you turn with me to the book of Hebrews, chapter 1. Jesus loved to tell stories on himself. Often they were odd stories without uh, any point or application or interpretation. They just, he just left them hanging in the air and in people's minds. His parables usually had one point to make, and uh, either his audience got it or they didn't. If they got the point, uh, there were a number of responses which they could make. They could either apply it to someone else, or they could seek Jesus' meaning and apply it to themselves. One of Jesus' parables was about a man who uh, planted a vineyard, and then he went off into another country to live, and he left behind some tenants, some tenant farmers, to take care of uh, of his vineyard. When the harvest came, he asked. Look, he came asking for some uh, of the fruit of the harvest. He sent a servant. The tenants uh, mistreated the servant, beat him up, threw him out of the vineyard, sent him back empty-handed. So he sent another servant. They treated that servant in the same manner, shamed him. Luke tells us, sent him away embarrassed and empty-handed. Sent other servants, whom they killed and mistreated in various ways. Then the, uh, the owner of the vineyard said, I will send my much-loved son. They will respect him. Now, in short form, that's the theme of the book of Hebrews. As the author puts it in the first verse of the book, in, in the past, God spoke to our forefathers through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us in a son. The book of Hebrews is all about the superiority of the son. If you look at the outline that's included with your bulletin this morning, you'll see that in, in a number of ways the author points out his superiority. is superior to angels. He's superior to Moses. He's superior to Aaron. He has a better covenant. He has a better sacrifice that he makes. He has a better sanctuary in which he makes that sacrifice. He's better than anything this world can, can afford. That's the theme of, uh, of the book. Now, whenever you start a new book, you always have to introduce it in various ways, and uh, this can get downright boring to some people. So I'm going to tell you at the outset, if you're bored, uh, you can take this opportunity to snooze. Uh, that's all right. I'll let you know when we're done with the introduction and we're actually into the text. We'll wake you up. I would just ask that you not snore. It's distracting to people that are around you. But uh, sometimes introductions are, uh, are necessary. Hebrews is a hard book, I have to confess. There are a lot of things about this book that I don't yet understand. I'm looking forward to taking a closer look at this book. I would encourage you not to believe that anything I say up here is gospel. I'm going to give you my best understanding of the book, but I want you to think through the book yourself. I want you to get acquainted with the book and uh, to evaluate my teaching on the basis of, of your understanding of, of the book. The first and perhaps the biggest problem in the book is one of authorship. Who wrote it? Uh, from the beginning, that's been a, a question because the... Uh, the author is anonymous and remains anonymous throughout the book, and uh, there's not much in tradition to help us. 
The earliest Christians who thought about the authorship of this book thought it was Barnabas, who was, as you know, Paul's sidekick, his associate in, the, in, the, in his second missionary journey. Um, and it's a possibility. The book is described as a word of encouragement or a word of exhortation. And, and as you know, Barnabas was known for that trait. In fact, his nickname was Son of Encouragement. So that, that's a good possibility. It might be Barnabas. Uh, Luther believed that it was Apollos, that gifted, brilliant young scholar who was associated with the Apostle Paul and with the church in, uh, in Rome and in Corinth. The author of the book is obviously well-versed in the Old Testament, uh, particularly the Greek version of the Old Testament. He's familiar with Greek and and Roman rhetorical style, the book reflects a great deal of, of that literary style. And Apollos is said in the book of Acts to be learned and mighty, brilliant man. It's a possibility that Apollos is the author. A number of more recent authors have thought that Priscilla, of the husband and wife team of Aquila and Priscilla, might have written the book. And there's no good reason why a prophetess could not have written a book of the Bible prophetesses wrote portions of the Bible. We have them contained in the scripture. But uh, the problem is the uh, author himself uh, destroys that theory in chapter 11 when he says, time would fail me to tell of uh, Deborah, Barak, and Jephthah, and others, and the me there is masculine. So that uh, gender marker is what one person called the rock in the track. Another possibility is that uh, there could have been two authors, Aquila, who was Priscilla's husband, and Priscilla. Uh, both were acknowledged teachers in the church in uh, Jerusalem. They were both good friends of uh, the Apostle Paul. Some of his teaching, of course, is reflected in this book. They were also good friends of Timothy, whose name appears in the book. They were host and hostess of the church in Rome, which was the city from which this book was, was written. And the easy transition of the author from we to I throughout the book would suggest dual authorship. So you know, perhaps this is the, the, the result of the combined efforts of this husband and wife team in the book of Acts. We don't know. Uh, I sort of go with Origen, who was a very early Christian, who said, uh, as to the authorship of Hebrews, only God knows. And that's where we have to leave it. I can tell you who was not the author. It was not the Apostle Paul. Uh, it's not uh, the the, uh, the uh, uh, text itself is not at all like Paul's writing, but there is a more significant reason why I think it was not the Apostle Paul. In chapter 2, verse 3, the author says, How shall we escape if we ignore such a great salvation? This salvation, which was first announced by the Lord and was confirmed to us, by those who heard him. And those who heard him were the apostles. And if you know anything at all about the Apostle Paul, you, would, you know that he would never have admitted to being uh, a second-generation Christian. As a matter of fact, the whole book of Galatians is written to establish that he didn't learn a thing from the apostles. Everything he received, he received by direct revelation from Jesus Christ himself. So uh, I have come to the conclusion that this that the writer is some unknown second-generation Christian who had a wonderful grasp of the Old Testament 
And who wrote in order to assure us that Jesus is the best thing that we have going for us? Now, as to the date of the book, uh, it must be dated somewhere between 50 and 70 A.D. It has to be uh, dated before 70 A.D. because at the time the book was written, the temple was still standing. And we know that Titus and the Roman legions destroyed the temple in in A.D. 70. It was probably written after A.D. 50 because uh, in 49 A.D., according to the book of Acts and also secular history, all the Jews were expelled from Rome. Apparently, there was a riot that broke out in Rome, one of the early... Uh, Roman historian Suetonius said that it came about, uh, the riot came about at the instigation of one Crestus, C-H-R-E-S-T-U-S. This is one of the very few, very rare references to Christ by secular writers of the first century. And uh, it's the thought of many people that some riot broke out between Jewish Christians and Jews in the city of Rome and the emperor Claudius, Claudius just threw all the Jews out of the city. And they were. this would include Christians as well as those that were uh, that were uh, Jews, on, Jews only. They were expelled from Rome. They scattered all over the Roman Empire. And I think this book was written to a congregation or to a number of congregations of, of Jewish Christians scattered around the Roman Empire. Now, you, you understand that in the very beginning, Christianity was nothing more than a sect of Judaism. But as things began to heat up, they were expelled, often at, at great uh, cost to themselves. Their businesses were boycotted. Students, when they became Christians, were denied entrance to the universities of that day. Professors were denied tenure. Uh, people were not invited anymore to the best homes and the best clubs because they'd, became, uh, they'd become Christians. The persecution at this time was not imperial persecution. In other words, it wasn't the emperors, Nero and Galba and others, Vespasian, that we know uh, persecuted the Christians to death. But uh, there was a great deal of social persecution, and uh, the Christians of that day uh, were being roughly handled and harshly treated because, simply because they were, they were Christians. And the problem was that many of them were thinking about going back to Judaism. They were thinking, is it really worth it? Is it really worth it to go on with Christ? Now, I think this, this book was addressed to these congregations mixed congregations in the sense that there were believers and unbelievers in the congregation. Uh, There would be new Christians and older Christians, that is, Christians who were long-term Christians, as long-term as you could be in those days. And uh, there were cynics and there were skeptics and there were seekers and there were would-be Christians like Judas who looked very good on the outside but whose unbelief was radical and, and profound. Actually, I think these assemblies were very much like any assembly of so-called Christians. Very much like this one. Now, you know your own hearts. Some of you are are Christians all the way to the core. Some of you are only nominally Christian, not vitally so. And very often I address you as Christians with the assumption that most of you are, but some of you aren't yet. You're here seeking. You're looking in from the outside. Or some of you have made a, a profession of faith, but there's never been any, any deep commitment to Christ. You have never really been born again in Jesus' sense of the word. Your heart hasn't yet been changed because there's an area of holdout. I know that Paul addresses the people here as holy brothers in chapter 3, but he's simply doing what Paul does in Corinth uh, to the church in Corinth. He addresses them as brothers and Christians and sanctified and justified. And in the very end, he says, test yourself to see if you're in the faith, because some are not. And I think that this is this was the condition of these of these 
groups of Jewish Christians. There were some real Christians and there were some inauthentic Christians who looked very good on the surface. And some of the inauthentic Christians were beginning to think it is just not worth it to be a Christian. And they were thinking about bailing out. And so the writer, whoever he may be, wrote to encourage them to go on. Don't go back. Judaism is defunct. The only thing left is to go on. Now, uh, the, uh, well, I guess that's all I want to say by way of introduction. You can wake up now. <clears throat> Let's look at the uh, first four verses of chapter 1. In the past, God spoke to our forefathers through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things and through whom he made the universe. The Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. After he had provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. So he became as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is superior to theirs. There are two time periods on the author's uh, mind. One is what he calls the time past when God spoke through the prophets. And then there are the last days when he has spoken to us through a son. The past, of course, refer refers to the Old Testament era, what we refer to today as B.C., the era before Christ. The last days are the present era that we refer to as A.D., Anno Domini, from the year of our Lord. We are living in the last days. The last days are not some far-off period yet to come. This, uh, this term is used in the New Testament, last days, for the inter-advent period. That is the period between the two comings of Christ, between the first and second comings of Christ. So the past, B.C., the present, A.D., the last times. I never think of those terms B.C. and A.D. without remembering uh, uh, an event that happened to Carolyn and me. We were camped at Priest Lake two or three summers ago, three summers ago now, and uh, fishing in the river, and two little boys came down from the house up above the river, and they stood and watched us and talked to us for a while. And... and uh, after a bit, Carolyn began to chat with one of these little boys about, about the Lord. And she asked him, she said, do you know what B.C. means? And he said, yes, it means before cowboys. <laughs> now, uh, B.C. doesn't mean before cowboys, and it doesn't mean before computers. It means before Christ. And the author tells us before Christ, uh, God was more vaguely known. Job put it this way, he says, we only see the edges of his ways. We hear his voice, but we hear it uh, very quietly. The revelation of God was incomplete in the Old Testament. Not inaccurate, but incomplete, shadowy. Sometimes difficult to understand, but when God got about, went about making very clear who he was, he sent a son who is the exact representation of his of his character. So shadow became reality. Rumor became the, the real thing. So what we have today in the New Testament is a visual aid of God. If you have 
trouble with God, if you feel that God is hard, then you've confused God with life. Life is hard, but God is not hard. He's like Jesus. If you want to know what God is like, take a good, hard look at the sun. That's how you'll know God. You know, we have been brought into life for only one purpose, and that is to see God and to know him. There's no other reason for being here. And uh, you say, well, he's hard to see. No, he's not. He's made himself abundantly clear. He has manifest himself in the Son. So you have two time periods and you have two revelations. There is before Christ and there is after Christ. There is the revelation through the prophets. And then there is the revelation through the Son. Now there follows seven statements about the Son. First... He is the heir of all things. Now, fathers always want to give their kids the world if it's good for them. And that's exactly what the father gave the son. He gave him the world. Ask of me, he said, and I'll give you the nations. Now, what that means is that he owns the cattle on a thousand hills, the wealth in every mine. He owns the rivers and the rocks and rills, the sun and stars that shine. Wonderful riches more than tongue can tell. And he's my father too, so they're mine as well. What that means is that because we're in Christ, we have everything that was given to him. The second thing that he tells us is that it was through the sun that he made the universe. Now, the writer uses an interesting term here. He does not use the word for world or universe. He uses the word that was used in in Greek uh, literature for time and space. In other words, our Lord not only made the world that we see, but he also made history. History is his story, as someone has said. Now, there are times when we go up into the sawtooth and we are awed by the majesty of what our Lord has made. We ought to be awed. We ought to worship him when we see what he's created for us. Genesis makes it very clear that everything that Jesus made was made for us, for our joy, for our delight. Uh, the whole world is created for our, for our sake. And so whenever we see what God has made, we ought to give thanks and we ought to worship him. I uh, saw a very interesting program on Channel 4 just this last uh, week on... Uh, on space and the wonderful, amazing things they're discovering in space. And but my reaction, in fact, I said to Carolyn when it was all over, so what? You know, what, what, what relevance does any of this information have for us here on earth? It only has relevance if when we see it, we acknowledge Christ as the maker and the Lord of it, of it all. But see, he not only created uh, space, he, uh, he created time. How do you react when you pick up the newspapers and you read, of what's happening in the Soviet Union and the communist bloc in Eastern Europe. And you know, now the Soviets are printing Bibles for their own people. A year ago, that would have been unheard of. They used to smuggle Bibles into the Soviet Union. Uh, we were able to send a team of high school kids, along with some adults, to the Soviet Union last uh, summer. They were able to stand in the, uh, in the uh, uh, train station in Leningrad and sing hymns and give witness openly to Christ, something that could not have happened a year ago. 
to what do we attribute those changes? You know, is it Reaganomics? Is it, uh, is it uh, you know, what, what is it? Well, our Lord has the hand of the king in his hand. He turns it wherever he wants it to go. History is his story. See? So he not only made the world of space what we see, but he made history, he made the world of, of time as well. Verse 3, the sun is the radiance of God's glory. He's the personification of it. He's the way that God's glory reaches us. Uh, John, in his gospel, says, The word was made flesh and dwelt among us. The word dwell means to tent, to tabernacle, to pup tent with us. The word became human. He took on humanity to live with us. And John says, we saw his glory. The glories of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. They saw flashes of his deity through his uh, humanity. Fourth, he is the exact representation of God's being. He has the same relationship which a coin has to the dye that produces it. It's not the same thing, but it's an exact uh, replication Uh, Let me read some words by an English writer. Show us the Father is Philip's profound expression of deep hunger behind the whole religious quest, speaking for saints and mystics, thinkers, moralists, and men of faith of every age. Jesus' staggering reply was, He that has seen me has seen the Father. This is what the doctrine of Christ's divine sonship means and why it matters. In his words, we hear God speaking. In his deeds, we see God at work. In his reproach, we glimpse God's judgment. In his love, we feel God's heart beating. If this be not true, we know nothing of God at all. But if it's true, and we know it is, then God is like Jesus. And Jesus is God, manifest in the flesh, the unique, incomparable, only begotten Son, of the living God. And then the fifth of these statements, he sustains all things by his powerful word. We may get the impression of the Lord simply holding up the world like Atlas on his shoulders, but this is not what the author intends us to understand. He's talking about the word of Christ that holds everything together. He's the glue that keeps the universe from flying apart. He's that unknown secret source that that scientists can never discover that holds everything together. It's his word that, uh, that has accomplished that. And then six, he has made purification for us. That's something no one else has ever done. That's something that no one else could ever, ever do. He made us pure. We all struggle with guilt. Sometimes it's false guilt, but sometimes it's true guilt. We know what we're like within. Carl uh, Menninger, uh, in his in his book, Whatever Happened to Sin, tells the story of a, of a self-styled prophet on the streets of Chicago who goes about pointing his finger at people and saying, guilty, guilty, guilty. And Menninger was walking with a friend of his down the street, and uh, this uh, fusty old prophet pointed him out and said, guilty. And his friend said to Menninger, how'd he know? <laughs> and uh, no one has to tell us we, we know what we're like. We know how desperately we need to be made pure. The tense of the verb provided purification suggests that this is something that he did once for all. That is one of the other themes of the book. His sacrifice is complete. 
as the hymn writer puts it, lifted up was he to die. It is finished, was his cry. And then because he had finished, he sat down. Uh, Which again anticipates more of the subject matter in the book of Hebrews. He sat down at the right hand of the majesty. That's another word for God, the majesty in heaven. There are no chairs in the temple. Priests were hustling about making atonement for sin, sacrificing animals, going through the various uh, activities that they were required to make for the sins of the people. The writer of Hebrews makes the point that's just busy work. isn't necessary. doesn't need to be done anymore. When our Lord finished the work that he came to do, he sat down. That's what you do when you don't have anything else to do. Uh, as George MacDonald says, it's nice to have a long nothing to do when everything else is done. And our Lord had nothing else to do, and so he sat down. So if there's anything we have to do, he'll let us know or he'll get up and do it. We don't have to do anymore. He made us pure. He made purification. By the way, that phrase, made purification, is a, actually a phrase lifted right out of the book of the Greek text of Leviticus and refers to the ministry of the priest, the high priest of that day. Jesus is our high priest who makes us pure. So our Lord is approved. He's approved. And that's why, verse 4 says, So he became as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is superior to theirs. He's better because he's the son. Uh, Thirteen times in the book uh, of Hebrews we're told Jesus is better. He's better. You can look at the outline and see what he's better than. He's better than angels. He's better than Moses. He's better than Aaron. He's better than any of the local high priests. He's better than your therapist. He's better than your pastor. He's better than your current boyfriend or girlfriend. He's better than new snow on bogus. He's better than your husband. I should hope so. He's better than your wife. He's better than a wife. He's better than your condo in Sun Valley or your cabin in McCall. He's better than your fitness program or your low-fat diet. He's better than silver or gold or riches untold. He's better than anything this world affords today. I've told you the story before of J.I. Packer who was walking across the campus of Cambridge University with a colleague of his. and His friend had just been denied tenure at the university, taught in the philosophy department, denied tenure because of his faith. So he was finished as far as uh, his profession was concerned. No other university would hire him. And as they chatted and walked across the campus, Packer's friend said to, said to him with a smile, It's all right, it's all right, he said, because I have known Jesus. And they have not. And so, if you're thinking of something or someone other than Jesus, you should know there's nothing better. None other lamb. None other name. None other hope in heaven or earth or sea. None other hiding place for shame and guilt. None beside thee. Let's pray. Father, we echo the words of the songwriter, I'd rather have Jesus than silver or gold. 
I'd rather have Jesus than riches untold. I'd rather have Jesus than anything this world affords today. He is the unique, incomparable, only begotten Son of God. Thank you for sending and sacrificing your Son for us. Thank you for showing us yourself. And now as we approach this time around your table, open your hearts. Help us to come in a spirit of worship and humility, recognizing who we are and what we are and what we need and and giving thanks for your cross. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.